Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Hi, everyone. I am Dr. David Proden, and welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast, our first episode of the year 2020. It is 64 degrees down here in the North Star Recording Studio, which has changed a little bit since the last episode. Let me run down the updates. First of all, the aesthetics. I've changed the layout of the studio. You can notice in back of you, there's now a bookshelf and just looking around the studio, um, things have become more efficient. Tossed out, organized, shampooed the carpet down here. Pretty nice. Um, The lighting has changed. The fluorescent lights above me were replaced with LED inserts. So they're four foot um, tube lights and now it is like a daylight down here right so it's actually much brighter for for reading and the work that i do it's much nicer but instead of having that kind of yellow light um that would would maybe play off the the paneling in the back and off of my face um, a little give it a little bit of a warmer look um that's not happening right now because the light has changed. So just it takes a little bit to get used to when I'm recording. I do have lights in front of me to throw some light at me, but I'm also going to be adding another light, which will be on a tripod to to light me up a little bit more because it does look darker when you're watching this compared to one of the previous episodes, like on YouTube. But ironically, it's much brighter down here. It's just that the light, the kind of light is is different. So um, I am using still my original um, camera I've I've used for 10 years. I changed out to a newer camera over the break, one that I bought three years ago, and I wanted to give it a try again. But that problem, the camera always had a problem with encoding uh, video and audio in sync. So I'd be talking and yet my mouth movements wouldn't be synced to the microphone. I had the same issue again, so there's something wrong with that camcorder. I uh, went back to this one, but I am going to be updating my camcorder uh, soon. And really, like the quality of this recording and the recordings that I do with this older um, Logitech camera are pretty good. Um, but the newer cameras are, are just so much more sensitive to light. So... One is you just have higher contrast. You look better in in lower light. And second is that everything seems to be more in focus with the newer cameras. So if I put my hand towards you, it would focus right now on my hand and take a little bit to get back to me. And the newer cameras just handle that better. And a webcam isn't a big investment, right? So I'm going to be looking at that. I'm going to be experimenting a little bit with my camcorder because I believe I can take my camcorder and directly um, do a line into my computer and have it recognized as the video source. So if I'm able to do that, um, then I could have some really awesome video and I could move around the camera easily into some some different angles for some different shows. Um, But it, it works really well, actually, when I do remote work. Now, when I do remote work, it's more um, if I'm doing that under uh, contract for some consulting services. So I might go out, uh, set up a webcam, or not a webcam, set up my camcorder on a tripod, then also have a, a different uh, lapel microphone and a different audio um, capturing source, like a Zoom microphone. That works really well. So I, I might be doing some changes um, in the office just to give me some flexibility. Uh, so it's it's not always always this image. I took my microphone, which is just beyond my hand and to my right. It's hanging upside down now. Um, I wanted to give that a try. It does free up space underneath. I like to work, um, have different documents that I'm kind of referencing. 
takes away some of the screen on the right. So I have my main screen and I have two screens flanking. Um, but I, I kind of like this this setup. So I'm trying trying a few new things here. And I did update to a new version of my web capturing um, program. So I'm giving that a try right now. It's got things like this. So hopefully you're not doing the Z's. You're not like, oh my goodness, not, not Dave's anecdotes. Yeah, no, it's kind of like, whoa. Like, look, it's powerful. It's great stuff. All right. And here's the one I really like. Shiny. Works good for my teeth. Um, so, yeah. Let me share an anecdote with you about what's been going on in this in, in the studio. So, this it's been a while since the last show. I took a, a little bit of a break um, over the Christmas time to go through all of the drawers, all of the file cabinets, files, documents, electronic documents, everything that was down here in the recording studio, also known as my home office. And it was amazing. Um, I found some things in files that uh, were here, you know, that I, that I created when we moved in in 2002. So obviously didn't need um, some of those things. I ended up having a huge bin um, filled with paper to either shred or burn. So I have a fireplace, you know, some, I can use paper just to start up the fire. That works well. Um, and then I had 40 compact discs. Some of these were DVDs. So when you store data on a DVD, personally, I think that turns out to be a really bad idea because then you have like four gig of data you know, files that you're saving onto a DVD. When you try to then copy that over to an external hard drive or to your hard drive in your computer, it just takes a long, long time because the DVD is only going to move so fast. Like it's not made for high transfer data. Um, so like no one would do that today, right? No one is going to hand you a whole bunch of data burned onto a DVD. They're going to give you a thumb drive, right? Which will hold, you know, 10 times that amount and be a fraction of the size and just... So that was tedious. Like to go through the 40 disk and copy it over to one external hard drive, which still then had 75% of the space left on it. Um, but it, it was a long process. Like it took a long time to figure out what to copy, what not to copy, things like that. And then my shredder has um, the ability to shred compact disc. So it has a little slot in the top and you just drop it in and comes out just like spaghetti, right? Except you wouldn't want to eat that stuff. So um, had a really nice case logic um, nylon case, you know, you know, you know, the kind for CDs. And I just didn't need it anymore because I'd gotten rid of these 40 CDs. So you know, we'll be putting that in the garage sale and just, it's, you know, things change. And um, so anyway, I went through and I found, uh, I'm going through all these documents and I, I found email addresses of some people that I hadn't stayed in contact with. Um, one was a former professor, I think one of the best professors I, I ever had. So, you know, just sat down, took a little bit of time to email these folks um, and, you know, just say hi, It'll live an update, not anything long, because I don't even know if they have this email address anymore. And everybody got back to me. Like, they were glad to hear from me. Um, everybody except one. One person did get back to me. Um, but it, I don't, it was like an AOL address, so I don't even know. I'm thinking that might not have even got to that person. But um, so coming back, um, it's such a cathartic process to go. Um, page by page to go drawer by drawer um, through credenzas and, and then pull everything out, wipe everything down. you got like the Swiffer sheet. So to actually see like that getting dirty, it's this whole process. It's very, very tangible, right? It's very real as you're cleaning and, and you have your piles of what goes and what doesn't or what you're going to sell and just or what you're going to toss. Um and, and you just have less things, right? Because the more things you have, the more things you have to take care of or monitor. And it's this mentality of, you know, people having to rent storage sheds for the stuff that they store and, you know, never look at again for 10 years. Um, just crazy, right? I mean, just take some time um, to be observant when you're driving around 
your town, your community of these these things going up. These these, you know, here's another fifty units that you can rent for how much a month. And um, again, the owners of these places will say, a lot of times people put stuff here and they don't. They just you know make the payment. They'll maybe visit once a year and that's it. I mean, so if you don't want a lot of stuff, right? That's the point. You don't want a lot of stuff because then you have to take care of this and this stuff. You want to be simple. So it was it was really a cathartic process and overdue. And I don't know why I felt the, the need to do this and why I also had the energy to do it. Um, you know, you think after a while you get bored after, you know, you're sitting there and you're going through file after file and drawer after drawer. And it's like, ah, nah, I don't want to keep doing this. But I felt really energized, like really um, driven to do this. And, you know, I've never cleaned like this before. So I went through everything, every nook, every, every cranny. Um, and then I said I also spent a night shampooing the carpet down here which, um, again, you're pulling out the dark water and we've got a, a laundry um, tub just in the room next to it. So it's easy to dump everything out. But uh, yeah, I, I spent a night and eventually, you know, just got to the point where I'm just putting hot water and in, in, in just sucking stuff up and um, putting fans, a dehumidifier, get everything dried down here but carpet looks great like where i'm sitting there is a piece of um you know like a, a thick plastic that the chair sits on so it rolls and um underneath that is the original carpet from years ago so you can definitely see what the carpet is supposed to look like <laughs> and then you could see all around where it just gotten really dirty over the years so now it's kind of all come back to one you know one uniform color it's really nice. I'm going to hit it up one more time this week with a little vinegar and hot water solution um, just because I think it's really good, but I still see kind of the main area that if you walk through here, there's another room. So it's kind of a path you, you go past right in back of me. I'll just hit that up one more time. But so, yeah, feeling really great. Um, I do have a room right on the other side of this wall um, to conquer next. And that is the furnace room. That's where I have a lot of tools, um, you know, things like that. Electrical stuff, plumbing, and I need to figure out what to keep, what not to keep. And there, I know there's a lot of stuff in there um, I haven't done anything with for, you know, 10 years. And it, you have new carpet put in, right? And I just keep some extra carpet because once in a great while, there's a need. Um, something happens to a piece of carpet, it gets stained, um, something like that. You have to cut it out. But again, it's really rare, right? And most of the time, I mean, now if anything happened, we probably just would replace the carpet. You know, it's been in a few years. And so I have all of these extra carpet pieces. <laughs> and I know they're for carpets we'd no longer have in the house. So I need to get rid of those. Now, the interesting thing, you put those out in a rummage sale. Um, people aren't necessarily going to buy those from you. But if you put free on that, like they're gone right away. People will take those. Um, so that's what we'll do. I'll move them over to a rummage sale area and somebody will have a whole bunch of different uh, carpets that they will be putting in little two by two foot rooms in their house I guess but um, but yeah so it's this really cool cathartic process I felt really good about it um. thank you for tuning in to the safety doc podcast with the nation's leading safety expert Dr. David Perodin author radio show host university instructor researcher expert witness and consultant Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. 
Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. Today, I'll be talking about true threats and focusing on what every parent should know. Because true threats, um, it's completely different for schools than it was like 20 years ago. So a, a, a true threat, what is a true threat? If you, um, if you yell um, fire in a theater, okay, that's a, that's a true threat um, because people would take that as, as, you know, they'd be authentic. People are trying to get to the exits, um, you know, scrambling for safety. They could be injured. Um, that, is, that is taken as a genuine threat. You can't say, oh, it's my First Amendment right to be able to yell what I want to yell. No, I mean, under that condition, it is considered a true threat. So we're going to talk somewhat um, about interpretations of the First Amendment, specifically, again, toward students. We're thinking more middle and high school students. Um, and uh, an awareness of, of, if you're a parent, what you need to be telling your kids about First Amendment and also about true threats. Um, we hear this too. Uh, somebody says, "I'm going to, uh, I'm going to kill you," or "I'm going to, you know, shoot up this area," or something like that. Um, not that that was ever appropriate to say, but somebody said that 20, 25 years ago. Um, it, it, you know, a lot of times that would have just been brushed off, um, especially if you know if a kid's mad or something like that, um, out on a playground, whatever. Um, but today, you know, if, if anybody says that, police will, you know, be involved likely. They come to a house, um, you know, especially if a kid posts something online um, and, you know, they're playing a video game and, oh, like, you know, so sick of this next time, I'm going to kill you so you, you can't win this game or something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, that that can end up in that child being taken into custody and then for a you know district attorney to make a determination if this threat was authentic, um, if it would actually qualify as an act of terrorism. So what I hear from parents who suddenly, you know, the police are knocking at the door and saying, we need to talk to your son or daughter. And because they had, they had made this threatening statement parent is saying yeah uh, apologize for this this is stupid of them they shouldn't have should have done this um but you know that doesn't suffice i mean not today they're taken into custody often and then this is something that uh, can be considered an act of terrorism can be honest your, your record um can result in, in you know juvenile or adult um, intervention from, from the legal system. So it's pretty scary. Anyway, let's talk about the First Amendment. So the First Amendment protects so much of what's going on out there. You know, people, especially on social media, protects a, a, a lot of what is said. And a true threat, okay, I'm, I'm just going to read this. True threat and students true threat can be considered an act of terrorism. So it is absolutely critical that schools overtly and bluntly make students aware that a threat to bring harm to their schools might result in arrest and prosecution as a federal act of terrorism. Yet the courts would need to consider the mental state and cognitive capacity of the student, but that's likely done after the student has been taken into custody. So the courts would need to um, you know, look at this and say, did the student have the um, uh, capacity to understand what they were saying, um, the impact of what they were saying? For example, if a student with um, mental um, health needs, Eng uh, English language learners, student with disability, I don't know, whatever, uh, you know, or if it's, um, you know, if it's a six-year-old, is this something they're, they're just, you know, repeating back because they've, they've heard it on TV or something like that? 
So that factor comes in, but again, that factor used to happen more um, right in the classroom with the teacher and the teacher's discretion, or if police were involved, the police would exercise their discretion with it. Um, but now, uh, again, in, in our society right now, those that discretion is being defaulted to the to the court, to the DA, to the to uh, judges to make that consideration. So, um, but coming back to what parents tell me is, they said if we would have just known that this would be the consequences of our son or daughter saying something would have would have been this the police taking them away um we would have sat down and, and been very explicit and over to to say do not under any circumstances say this um, or write this or you know however you're going to communicate this because there is a very high likelihood that this would be the consequence the immediate consequence of you know law enforcement intervention you being taken from the house, but then consequences of fines, of court hearings, of, of, of destroying your record, of destroying um, opportunities to get into universities, jobs, careers, things like that. Um, that is, I, I hear that over and over again. So this is a point I also communicate to students in my educational leadership classes. Make sure that students are very thoroughly instructed on true threats. Um, you know, another example, uh, you know, 25 years ago, student pulling um, fire alarm, school exit, student calling in a bomb threat. Um, those sometimes, um, you know, were prosecuted to the full extent, often if it was the, the first time that it had happened there was more of an abeyance type um, situation of maybe some out of school suspension, um, possible expulsion. But, you know, again, today, these these types of true threats are we're in such a hypersensitive, hypercharged environment. They're taken very seriously and you can really um, uh, I, I don't want to say destroy, but that's the word that keeps you know, coming to the forefront, you can you can kind of destroy your your you know life. I, I guess your your you know your social connections, um, your ability to you know, get into post secondary. I mean, consider your ability to maintain enrollment at a certain school if you've just made a threat right online that you're going to do something against that school or against some classmates and. Um, now, I want to make this very clear. I, I'm saying these are situations where um, there isn't any uh, intent to carry out a threat. It is, it is just that this is vernacular that, um, you know, when I was growing up, for someone to say, you know, we used to play cops and robbers. I mean, we used to have the little guns. We used cap guns we used to go around with. But to say, like, you're going to, kill somebody or you know you're gonna you know beat them up or something like that or or whatever was you just heard that more and, and people just kind of took it within the context that wasn't really what was going on a must read for parents teachers and taxpayers dr david perodin has written the most honest book about the three billion dollar school safety industrial complex Attorney James Sibley proclaims, a brave demonstration of speaking truth to power, School of Errors rips the lid off the billion dollar school safety industry. Using real world examples of successful responses in desperate situations, David contrasts the expensive window dressings pitched to panic parents with the inexpensive and effective approaches proven to actually work. Read this book before you let your school waste another precious dollar on meaningless safety theater. Buy the international bestseller, School of Errors, Rethinking School Safety in America, now at Barnes & Noble or Amazon. So let's move to uh, True Threats Prosecution. So 
There have definitely been an increase in the visibility of true threats prosecution, says Jennifer Kinsley, a law professor at Northern Kentucky University who litigates First Amendment cases. She explains that many of these arise from social, um, social media posts and from the domestic arena where divorce parties make angry statements. These individuals may claim that their spoken words are protected by First Amendment, that their offensive expressions were merely crude political opinions, jokes or rants not meant to be taken seriously, or misguided attempts to blow off steam. But in an age beset with mass shootings and fear of terrorism, government officials likely will contend that such utterings or mutterings fall into the category of true threats, a type of unpredicted, unprotected speech, um, that's from the ABA Journal. The author is Hudson, the year 2008. So First Amendment protects what you say, right? It's freedom of speech. But if you make a true threat, something that can be considered a true threat, it falls outside of the First Amendment. It's not protected. Okay. And again, in an age beset with mass shootings and fear of terrorism, government officials likely will contend that such utterings or mutterings fall into the category of true threats, which are not protected speech. So this is this is fascinating of what counts as speech. Okay, so obviously verbal speech. Um, you know, we think of writing; those those would be speech, but. Let me, let me give you a few more examples of what counts as speech. And these have actually been proven in the courts. The courts have accepted these as expressions of speech. So here we go. Courts have identified speech as expression in online post, theater and dance, art, political yard signs, handing out flyers, and clothing. Okay, get this though. At least... Um, one federal appeal court found that liking a Facebook post qualified as speech. So if let's say somebody is, is threatening, yeah, I'm, I'm going to, you know, go and kill whoever. I'm going to go in and do this. And you go in and you click like, okay? Um, that's been argued that now you are basically condoning you're a part of this by just clicking the like button, okay? Or the thumbs up or a smile or whatever. So the limits of that is still an open question. Like this is new, right? We haven't had social media, um, you know, for years and years and years to establish court cases and precedent. I mean, it's very, very new. I mean, we're a decade in with uh, smart devices. So, this is this is really intense, right? So when have you ever heard someone coached on, on uh, what is a true threat, what is what is First Amendment, what's protected, what's not instructed, I should say, with students? Um, and the statement of if you are, you know, liking, if you're giving a thumbs up, a smiley, whatever, to certain posts made by other people, that can be interpreted as a form of expression on your part and kind of if you're showing expression that indicates you have a positive response to what they're saying what they're saying is considered possibly a true threat of bringing harm now there's some potential implication for you again this is this is not the rule yet but it, there is one court that has gone down that path um Schools do not sit down with the handbook and get this explicit with students about First Amendment and then about true threats. So that needs to happen. That needs to happen and be documented. Also needs to be up on the website. Here is, um, a, here, here's a set of examples of First Amendment speech for our students. Um, and here's like our, our First Amendment, um, our, our writing policy. Um, you know, writing is, uh, I'll give an example of a writing policy, but I want to make sure that we, we encourage students to be expressive, but we also need to be able to jump in if we identify the potential of a true threat. But um, I'm going to just pause right here because 
the the heart of this podcast, the heart of this this discussion, is the education of the true threat. Because when I was in school, nobody ever talked about First Amendment. No one talked about true threat either. Um, so I, I had no idea of where the First Amendment kind of started and ended. And in today's schools, so again, I teach you know educational leaders, superintendents, directors of special education, principals, so forth, and you know they'll say, well, it's in our handbook. We have it in our handbook, some section about um, harassment, bullying, and and like, okay, we it's in there, but do you have a section specific to true threats and? specific to First Amendment in the school. And, and very few do, right? Very few do. And if they do, um, it's it's at a level where the kids and parents really aren't understanding it. It's kind of vague. You don't have examples of saying, here are five examples of freedom of speech um, protected under the First Amendment in the school. Here are five examples of what would be considered um, true threats. Um, likely, right? Everything is, there's some subjective line, but likely, like here are examples of true threats. That would be invaluable to students. Have that instructed by the counselors or have the SROs instruct that um, because the SROs can also give the perspective of, you know, if something gets turned in to us and, or to me as a school resource officer, and this is, this is what it says, the student has made this post. Um, I then will go to the student's home or if they're in school, I will go to where they are in class. They'll come out of class. Here's the questioning. Here's the other stuff that I'll be looking at. They'll be in contact with their parents. Here's, uh, you know, to kind of give this, to have the school administrators explicitly talk about, here's what it looks like. Um, the investigation we would go through, um, you'd be suspended during that investigation, like your email, your school email, your, all your school um, Google Drive would be froze. We'd be going through things, your locker, stuff like that. So, but, you know, we don't, we don't do that. We don't do that. And so parents get very surprised. And I think parents, for the most part, know, right? If the police are showing up, the parents are, are going to say, hey, you know, I know my child this was not a true threat that they posted. But they'll also say, I know what you have to do. I know this is the age that we live in and, you know, this, so they're going to be going away in a squad car. Um, so this is, this is something I'm championing in consulting work that I'm doing right now. And also in my courses, and I have a course beginning next week uh, with 14 um, educational leaders in it. And in that course specifically, we'll be talking about how we educate students about First Amendment and true threats, and specifically how we educate students with disabilities, um, where we sometimes have to pay greater attention to comprehension and making sure that we present things in a way that the student understands it. There's something called the teach back method. So if I show you how to do something or an example, and I say, okay, now you show me an example of a true threat, okay? And then, so the student is say, like I'm a new student, okay? And now what would you tell a new student about true threats? Okay, don't do this because this would be a true threat. Okay, so it's a teach back method. I see, I see what you're doing there, like you understand it. But we don't do that. We don't do that with kids and we need to, to do that, especially students with disabilities. 55 million kids go to school in the United States every day 15% of those students have disabilities. If we're thinking about um, autism, cognitive disabilities, we need to be very explicit in the way that we are instructing students about true threats. Also, not just that they would um, would navigate away from, you know, errantly making a true threat, but then also that they would identify if a peer is making a true threat and they'd be able to communicate that forward to an adult. So all of those benefits. Um, confusion in the courts, 
Okay, so the courts are struggling with what is what is a true threat and what is protected by free speech. So here we go. The Supreme Court's true threat jurisprudence is less than clear. A review of lower court decision indicates a hodgepodge of different results. The Supreme Court of South Dakota recently upheld the conviction of a man for threatening a judicial officer by stating, well, that deserves 180 pounds of lead between the eyes. And now I see why people shoot up courthouses. Okay. Another court case, um, the Connecticut Supreme Court ruled that a man's statement to his brother, if you go into the attic, I will hurt you, could be considered a true threat and denied the defendant's motion to dismiss. So it's really, it's really messy um, right now. Let me go. Okay. So let's recap. What is a true threat? Okay. In legal parlance, a true threat is a statement that is meant to frighten or intimidate one or more specified persons into believing that they will be seriously harmed by the speaker or by someone acting at the speaker's behest. So, you know, we talked about yelling fire in a theater is is not protected public expression that would be considered a true threat. Um, a true threat, you know, saying, yeah, um, you go into that attic, um, um, you, you're going to regret that, uh, you know, you ever came over here. You're not going to be making out of this house or something like that. So let's look at the terms. A true threat is a statement that is meant to frighten or intimidate one or more specified persons. So this is where we need to flip the perspective a little bit. So you can say, oh, I said that, but, you know, that wasn't my intent. Well, your intent isn't necessarily as important as how the recipient perceived your message, right? If the standard of care is how would a typical person respond if you were making that statement to them? You know, you're not going to, if you go up in that attic, you're not going to be leaving this house. Um, and if the thought is, you know, that's a, that would be interpret, interpreted as a frightening, intimidating statement, um, then that's a, that's a true threat. Persons believing they would be seriously harmed by the speaker or someone acting, I guess, on the speaker's behalf as a proxy. So again, you know, maybe the, someone says, I've got connections and, and you know, they'd, they'd be able to take you out or something like that. So believing that you could be seriously harmed. This is the part, again, maybe you didn't mean that. Maybe you were just blowing off steam or whatever, right? But, okay, how the person, the recipient, how they perceive that message, there's subjective um, feeling from that. You know, I'm, I'm feeling scared. I feel scared for my family. I'm this is very un unsettling. Yeah, I mean, this. it seems like this is a, a threat a, to bring serious harm to me or my family. Um, then it becomes a true threat. So this is the part, too, that we need to be very explicit with students, saying, you know, you. it's the statement that you say or post or whatever, however you express it, and then it's how other people receive that statement if when they look at it. So necessarily your intent versus how it was received, these are these are two different things. Um, let me move on a little bit here. I want to get to um, I want to get to a court case right here actually. Here we go. All right. August 8th, 2019. This was um, just days after the El Paso shooting. All right. Freedom of speech versus a threat to the public. It was the Wilbur Marr case. W-I-L-B-U-R, Wilbur Marr, M-A-R-R. -R. Okay. August 8th, 2019. Wilbur walks into a library. Okay. Does this in a different state. This isn't in Texas, but he walks into a library and um, he, he says, so the library staff 
hear this. He says, if you ask me, Patrick did us a favor. Okay. If you ask me, Patrick did us a favor. So Patrick was the shooter in El Paso, right? Patrick killed a lot of people. Um, and then, so he says this statement, goes on to a computer, logs in, and he searches for the shooter's manifesto. All right. So again, this man goes into library. It's a different state. I think it was Missouri. Not exactly sure, but it was a different state. Um, it just says, hey, if you ask me, Patrick did us a favor, this shooter. That actually becomes a probable cause statement. So that um, that's raised the concern of, of the library staff. Okay. And um, here we go. All right. So the other part of this is um, he asked the library staff, he said, what's, why is the flag at half mast in front of the library? Why is the flag? They said, it's a federal declaration um, because of the El Paso shooting. All flags right now are flown at half staff. And, um, you know, the, he's disgruntled with that. And again, that's where he's saying, you know, if, if he asked me, the shooter did us a favor. So library staff contact the police and they feel that this man has made a true threat, okay? That his statement um, is, they, they're feeling that they could be harmed by him, um, that he's, he's agitated. So let me, let me go through this case. In his complaint, the county prosecuting attorney wrote about Marr that Marr knowingly caused a false fear that a condition involving danger to life existed by entering the library and asking about the flags, then responding about his comment about the shooter, like the shooter had done us a favor. So this guy ended up um, going to jail. They took him to jail and eventually he was before a judge. And I believe this was then dismissed um, because it wasn't found that it, it by, by the judge that it was a true threat. But this is, again, it's, it's not the discretion of law enforcement, um, you know, trying, trying to figure this out, you know, meeting, meeting with this guy. It, it, it really is this perception of how the library staff had uh, felt with what he was saying by his actions. This guy gets taken to jail and then the judge, the courts are making the determination. So um, I, I know many times, um, you know, the people will say if you get pulled over, you know, you're, you're not going to the, have your courtroom, you know, be with the police officer, you know, pulling you over. That's that's not the time for that. You know, the time is to, at that point is to um, follow the directives of the officer and, you know, to, to be um, to comply with requests and things like that. So this isn't a point where an officer is going to come down and, and try to make a judgment call on this and, and, you know, go through this, this and, you know, interview uh, Wilbur Marr. Um, and no, it's he's being taken to jail. So this this is where we're at right now. And again, think of think of this in a school setting. So here's something I wanted to share. Dun, dun. Written expression rule. Okay. If you are a parent and you're asking your son or daughter, hey, the school, so they talk to you about First Amendment and, and true threats. Um, how, did, how did that work? Did they go through? You're probably saying, what? What are you talking about? And then they're, they're giving you this, the old Zs. But um, I, I propose a written expression rule. So I'll have this up on the screen in the video version of this. So a written expression rule. I think every, uh, every classroom where there's writing involved um, should, should have this, you know, at a middle and a high school level. Here it is. Writing is encouraged and practiced in this classroom. However, staff has the right 
to restrict your access to, um, you know, the internet, uh, books, media, whatever, if your writing is violent, graphic, obscene, or disruptive to the learning community, or you write about harming yourself or harming others. Okay. So why does this happen? Um, why do you need a statement like that? So, and you might be saying, well, if you have a statement like that, you know, student writing does have a First Amendment protection. So you're basically saying, you know, if something is graphic or disruptive to library or, or to library or to the classroom community, um, you could intervene. But wouldn't that be protected under First Amendment? Yeah, it might be, right? But um, especially with students, you're going to have the ability to go in to ask questions and to learn more. I'm not being super clear on that, but um, I think the point, though, is saying to students, if you are writing something that I or other students perceive as, you know, graphic, obscene, or a threat of harm to self or others, I'm going to ask questions about it. Okay, it doesn't, it's, it doesn't necessarily mean the SRO is going to be here. Um, and we're going to look at the context you know, were you writing a play or something? Like, did are you a big fan of Stephen King and you've, you've seen some new Stephen, you know, uh, King uh, movies or, or similar type movies come out? Um, you know, even Shakespeare, right? <laughs> a lot of Shakespeare's work was, was really dark. The Bible has really dark, scary stuff. So, and writers may mimic what they read. And that doesn't always have to be a bad thing, but it takes a lot of clues um, and more than one violent word or you know one violent sentence to determine if it's something sinister so if you have the discussion right away with students again that that first second class and you say here here's our rules for written expression or for expression in the classroom and if you know these things happen and have students ask well what if i do this or what if someone made this statement or this post or whatever, or what if I said something and then realized, oh, like that could be interpreted in a way that I didn't intend for it to be interpreted. How can I fix that? These are all great questions, right? So you have that first, second, you know, class. You almost have a, a rubric in kids' minds that, that they're processing out. And this is good stuff because, I mean, if they're out in other settings, they're going to apply this the same filter. Um, and it might lead a student to be a little preemptive. I mean, obviously, if you're making a movie, you know, like the movie Joker or something like that, um, it is, uh, it's entertainment, right? I mean, if you're going there, you expect that it's going to be, you know, violent and, and disturbing in that, but it is up on a screen. It is a movie. You fully know that. Um, all right. Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Michael Chabon wrote an essay for the New York Times in 2004 in which he defended violence in student writings. He argued that it's healthy for students to express the ugliness of the world and that adults are being paranoid and prudish, right? So this is where we come in and, you know, someone could say, if we are hyper-regulate on everything that kids write, everything that they do, we're basically going to have the next student who is similar to Stephen King will, you know, instantly be in a juvenile detention center, right? Because they're, they're dark and um, graphic in their writing and things like, things like that. Um, this is why it's very important to not profile, not try to profile students um, to figure out who's going to be the, the next quote-unquote school shooter. We know that, one, there isn't a profile, but when you try to profile, you're going to identify your, your goth kids. You're going to identify, um, you know, your kids who do have very expressive writing, like a Stephen King. Think of Stephen King as um, a 16-year-old. Um, if you're reading his, his writing, what might you think? So um, when to worry, though, okay? 
again, communicating this out to students. You know, if I'm the teacher, I'm the adult administrator, say, you know, I'm going to worry when what you're writing doesn't reflect the literary purpose of the task. So, you know, if the purpose is to, you know, write an essay about, you know, being, I don't know, um, you know, lost somewhere in, in the struggles of trying to, to find your way without knowing people, having a network and things like this. And, and your essay then is, I'm going to kill everybody. I'm just, I'm angry, all, all of this. And it's like, that doesn't match the purpose. Like you can have all the frustrations of saying, I came so close to, you know, getting this and then this happened and I was so frustrated in the end, you know, just wanted to give up at that point. But then, you know, like that fits the assignment, but let's go. The next part, violent threats are specific, much detail and excessive. You know, if you talk specifically about this step and this step and this step and this step as you're going to bring harm to somebody. Like I will follow them to this point and then I will do this as a distraction, this, and then I will hit them specifically right here and then I will do this. And and once, you know, that much detail and super excessive, you know, I will um, hit them, you know, so many times or until, you know, this, I, I can feel their bones being crushed with this bat. I mean, something like that um, would, a time to worry. And this is from um, Frightening Fiction in Edutopia by Randall, year was 2007. Or the person suffers from depression, unhappiness, or bullying. A lot of those you're not going to know um, necessarily as, as a teacher. You would know that more as a parent. Um, for example, if the, if the child um, has a medical condition, a counselor might know this. I mean, they would look into this, but this is where they would, um, these are things they'd be looking at. Let's go through these again. So we have three areas. One, the content does not reflect the literary purpose of the task. Two, violent threats are specific with much detail and very excessive. Three, the person suffers from depression, unhappiness, or bullying. So bullying, all of those things come together. Um, those are, those are conditions of when to worry. Um, now I have um, questioning the author. Okay. So these make sense to go through again, right up front with kids saying, if you do have this type of expression, which might be a borderline of a true threat, um, if it is a true threat, you know, if you explicitly say this, this is a consequence that's going to happen, probably no question about that. But once you get up to that, that gray area of a true threat, I'm going to be asking some questions or I will or a counselor, maybe the SRO or administrator or whoever it is. Um, and I'm, here's questions I'm going to be asking. I'd like to learn more about what you wrote. Help me to understand what inspires you to write. What was the motivation for the writing? Again, or post or whatever it is. Where did you write the piece? Why did you write the piece? What were you trying to accomplish? Can you share more about things you like to write about? Do you understand why I might be concerned with your writing? Do you need to talk with about any problems that you are facing? So again, I, I think there is much value in being very overt with kids and um, you know parents and you know even putting some of these type of types of things in a handbook or a start of your presentation um, and and to inform kids and families right away at the start because otherwise what happens what happens somebody makes a post and then other people get concerned about it and now they're they're you know kid is taken um, is suspended police go to the the, the house interviewing the, the child and all of this and, and, and the child, everybody's panicked. They're very panicked. And, and we, we go back to the point of where explicitly were they instructed about this? Now, right there, I'm not making an excuse. Okay. I'm not making an excuse, but I am wanting people just seem always to handle things much better. If you tell them ahead of time, what's likely to happen. So, you know, this is if a, if you're telling a family, if you're telling a student, you know, if, if we have concerns because of, you know, these reasons, 
This is what is likely going to happen. These are questions we are likely going to be asking you. And also as a student, I mean, if you can kind of piece these through in your mind of saying, I don't know, um, you know, what what is my motivation for writing this? Or, you know, if someone was, might this concern someone? And not then that I shouldn't write it, but what would I say to someone? Um, well, again, what am I trying to accomplish with this? So very important points here for what is a what is a true threat. Um, I believe we, we just need to get more um, more overt, more explicit in how we instruct all students about this. It typically isn't anything that's instructed. We don't cover First Amendment. Uh, we don't cover true threats. We need to give examples. If we have students with disabilities, we need to have it in the IEP. Um, again, it's it's helping that student with uh, with understanding how to to negotiate um, those those boundaries, but then also helping to identify right threats, th things that they read, things that they experience that um, could be early indicators of of harm to you know harm and and harm to self, harm to others. So there's a lot of value. Truth that. True threats, everybody. So, all right. This is the safety doc, Dr. David Proden. Um, thank you so much for joining me here. Talking about true threats. Um, it's a different layout down here in the studio. I like it. And I do have like three big monitors now and, and it's a different configuration. So it's taken a little bit to get used to it because um, how I had things kind of queued up, I have to move around. and But uh, it, it is an upgrade. Like it definitely is. I never thought I'd get that much dust out of here. Thank you, Swiffer. Something, you know, the Swifter dust, dust rags. I mean, those things, when I grew up, they didn't exist. And now they're like, they're just awesome. So um, check out the405media.com. John Grant and the 405 Media. Follow the Safety Doc on Podbean. Follow me on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And subscribe to the YouTube channel. So have 100 subscribers now. I kind of look at that and smile because a lot of the shows that I follow, you know, they've just got my 100,000 subscriber and they get their platinum thing from YouTube mailed to them. I don't think I'll ever get there, but I do know that this has um, has value at it and it's, it's important. Thank you. Please post down below. Feel free to email me. I did respond to a number of emails over the break regarding shows or uh, my PBS presentation. And that, that is always, I will always get back to you um, on that. Someone had emailed me. Uh, there was a research grant given out in Florida to a team of researchers by the National, from the National Science Foundation to use um, a cortisol scanner, which would be like um, skin-based or something. You'd roll over. I didn't, I didn't get the whole thing. It's a little science fiction-y for me. But uh, basically, I talked about hyper-realistic drills and um, how kids, uh, you know, their cortisol levels can go up and all of that. And this, this is actually a study of how to measure cortisol levels um, secondary to like st stressful drills and activities. Now, that's probably like years down the road before that ever get practical. But for me, I want to see the lit review because I think I can pull information out and maybe bring it into a podcast. So here's some studies that have already been done in certain areas and certain groups. So I'm going to reach out to those folks. I got a note. I've got the study printed off over here. But yeah, one of my listeners, viewers, whatever, found that. And and he's a scientist. So he said, this is really interesting, Dave. I know you've talked a lot about this. Um, this probably would be something that would provide some objective evidence to the biological impacts um, of hyper-realistic drills. So check it out, right? All right, Safety Doc signing off, everybody. Thank you. This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perotti. Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.